I was not able to talk to Lachelle Bolton when she appeared at the Grab Life by the Goals Summit, my group there at the squad, um, but she is an inspiration. Uh, a teen mom, and her mom was a teen mom, and she is, uh, you just need to hear it to believe it, of how she turned her life around, and for her, just like a ministry. Uh, we talked via Zoom, and I think you'll be inspired as I was. Lachelle Bolton. There had been a lot of unresolved stuff because I really, really, you know, I really blamed her for what my father was allowed to do. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson, your host, for pushing toward 190 episodes. Never missed one in the last three and a half, almost four years now. I have wanted to talk to Lachelle Bolton for the longest time. I'm sorry we had to talk on Zoom. Didn't have time when she was here in town. And she just inspired me so much with her own personal story. And you have to hear it from her. Um, We've edited this down for length, but it packs a wallop when you hear what she has survived and thrived and is now helping others to do so as well. Lachelle Bolton. Where were you born? I was born in Mount Vernon, New York. For your mother, you're number what of how many? Number one. Out of? Four. And how much older are you than the rest? So between me and the youngest, I believe is 14 years. Wow. Yes. I have a very, very interesting story, Stu, as you know. So my daughter and my youngest sister were born in the same year. So my daughter was born in January. My sister was born in December. I was 14. Tell me that story. So I was extremely, extremely bright, um, actually gifted as a child, and it was good. It was good. And um, then when we got to middle school, there were two middle schools in Mount Vernon. One was called A.B. Davis and the other one was Nichols. Davis was like sort of where the, the humanities kids would go, the, the, the gifted kids. You, but Nichols was right behind it. And Nichols had the bad boys. I see where this is going. We all we all uh, dismissed at the same time each day. So here you were mixing, you know, these these good girls with these bad boys. We're all supposed to be walking home together. And I found who I thought at 14 was the love of my life. (laughs) And one thing just sort of led to another. I, I can't tell you what he said. It was it was how he looked at me. It was um, how he held my hand. 
It was how he made me feel. I felt safe. I felt safe around him. I had already previously experienced, um, you know, some trauma in my life. And, um, you know, at the, at the age of four, I was molested by my dad. Um, and there was just some other things that had happened just with men that were, uh, you know, allowed to come in the home. And so I guess at that point, I didn't really realize just sort of how vulnerable I was or even how uh, broken I was. But with Steven, it felt it felt right where everything else felt dirty. Even him holding my hand felt right. And so um, if you would have asked me back then, like, we were going to be married forever. We were going to, like, he was like my prince. And, um, and, and I wind up, I wind up getting pregnant. You know, I, I, if I'm going to tell the story, I'm, I'm just going to tell the story. I had quickly become very, very rebellious. Um, once I met him, I just really sort of felt like, um, this was the person I wanted to be with. And here I was at 13 years old, not coming home from school, going to his home, um, you know, afterwards, sometimes supposed to be home on a Friday, not coming home until Sunday. And I'm like 13. Then I started cutting school, et cetera. And so my mom took out what was called the PINS petition, which was parents in need of support and took me to family court. And because I had become truant, et cetera. And at this point, I, I wasn't pregnant Um and, you know, just that went on. Actually, I must have met him. I must have been 12 going on 13 because this went on for a good while. And um, I remember then getting caught up with a group. I wasn't with him at the time, but um, I wasn't physically with him that, when this happened. But I remember getting caught up in a group with some older kids. They were like 17, some of them maybe even like 19. We were in a car and you know, drinking, et cetera. And we were out on Long Island and we got pulled over and the car was stolen. So this all is leading up to my daughter being born. So the car was stolen. <clears throat> we were out in Long Island. Um, they start searching the car, there's things in the car, et cetera. And we all got sent to um, like a lockup facility. And it was like real lockup like orange suits, et cetera. And during that process, as we were getting um, like our physical exams, et cetera, is when I found out I was pregnant. And they told me, they, they told me that they couldn't accommodate pregnant girls in this particular facility. So I could either get an abortion and I would have to do, I think it was 18 months or something. Or if I kept the baby, then I would be sent to a group home up in Syracuse, New York. And that was that was really my deciding factor in even having my daughter at, you know, I was I was 13. And then I turned 14 January 14th of 1986 and she was born January 23rd 
1986. And six months later, up in Syracuse, up she's in up Syracuse. in Syracuse. And what she's was the like, what was the labor and delivery? What was that like? It was it was beautiful. Um, one of the counselors was she really really just took me under her wing from the whole time I was there. Um, I knew that she was going to be you know in the delivery room with me. I actually had my daughter in a birthing chair. It was when they, they first started to offer that. Um, it was, you know, it, it, it was it was a beautiful experience, but, you know, you're 14. And so you're experiencing what a grown woman should be experiencing. But I even gave her my daughter's, uh, my I gave uh, Tania, which is my daughter's name. I gave her this woman's middle name, Christine, Tania Christine. Um, and so in this group home, you stay after you had the baby, you stayed there for, uh, I believe it was like maybe another three to four months. I went home and then her father got killed. Oh my God. How? Uh, it was, it was a police issue. Oh my God. Yep. She was six months. He was selling drugs. He got arrested. It was his first charge ever. Let me just preface this by saying, since this incident happened, there were many, many, many reports and unfoldings of the corruption of the Mount Vernon Police Department. Um, so he got arrested. He was in the local jail cell for probably two hours, not even. And they tried to say that he hung himself. The autopsy report definitely showed strangulation and um, his mother just did not have the strength nor the wherewithal to really, really dig into it a little bit more. But everybody, everybody knows that it was, you know, he was he was beat. He was beat. People in other cells heard him sort of yelling and um and then he, you know, he died, he died via strangulation, but they, you know, they tried to say it was suicide. He had no reason to kill himself. What was your reaction when you got the news? I, I can't even put it into words. I, I really, I, I don't know. I don't know what those feelings even are to this day. It was, it was so much pain, loss, anger, helplessness, and even hopelessness. This was long before. Black Lives Matter, but there was still, you know, civil rights. How do you feel today about police and the justice system? As I continue to see things unfold, I believe that there's still a lot of work that has to be done. Um, and I don't know where that work begins. I don't know if it's, you know, really doing more of a thorough background check on people who say that they want to serve and protect. Um, there are certainly trust issues. I know there are. I mean, I, I have friends who are, you know, really, really good, good police officers. I, I know that. I know that they're there. And at the at the same time, you know, I just feel like we haven't made a lot of progress and there's a lot of incidences that don't make the news. 
a lot. Were these mostly white cops? They were white cops. Um, Were they all white cops? It was only two of them. It was two detectives. And they were, they were, they, they wound up just being exposed years and years later of just so, so corrupt, so corrupt. Um, So I don't know how to put it other than bluntly. How do you feel about white people? Wow. I didn't expect that question. That did not um, influence how I feel about white people. Even growing up, even prior to that, when I was in, in this gifted program, some of my dearest, dearest friends um, are white. I don't even think this is, is a race thing. Hate is hate. Hate gets passed on generationally. It was funny because all of my son's friends were white and sort of had almost like, you know, they wanted their their pants, their pants to sag. And, and <laughs> you know, it was like a culture thing. They all this uh, all this culture began to blend. And they really, I don't want to say they didn't see color because that's ignorant, but they, you know, it, it just it just became more congruent. They just, they just really, really melted together. So in short, I did not allow that incident to influence me for a whole population of people as, as a whole. So you've got this new baby girl and you're up in Syracuse, but you're a teenager. Um, it's, it could be overwhelming if you're in your th- 30s or 40s if you have a child for the first time and you're a single mom yeah so you know i i i really did have help and um it was hard though because i had really given my mom hell and she had me at 17 i want to say so she wasn't you know that much older than me and she was still trying to figure out her life and you know, she was newly married and there was just a lot going on. And then here I come back with this baby and, um, and I, and I wasn't, you know, the first couple years of, of, of her life, I wasn't the best mom. I was, you know, I was that type of person. My name is Lachelle, but my family calls me Shelly. And it would be like, if, if Shelly asks for you to babysit for a couple hours, do not keep that baby. She will not be back for three days. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a Friday night, you might as well bring church clothes because she ain't coming. Like, it was terrible. It was, I was, <laughs> oh God. You got a reputation. I had a terrible reputation, a terrible reputation. You know, my mom had my daughter a lot. Yeah, she she was there, and, and even though we had a, a really really tough relationship for many years, she did she she had my daughter on her hip, and and at times she was she was pregnant. You know that's that's real talk. But I did move out really really young. I, I moved out at seventeen. Um, at that point, I had the two babies. I, I tried it on my own for a, a very short time. I, I got married very, very young to someone. And that, that was, that was very, a very, very bad decision. And after that, I moved to the Bronx with my father's mother. 
And I remember telling her that I just needed to stay for six months. And we stayed with my grandmother for over five years. And she began to really, really, really um, teach me how to be a mom. What did she do differently? First of all, there were just there were just ground rules in her home. It, you're not sleeping all day. I don't care what you did the night before. When 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 it's morning time, we rise. We 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 get up. We prepare for the day. You know, she she was she was a tough nut, but she was so loving. She taught me discipline. I remember it would be a Sunday, and I would iron their clothes for the week. You know, preparing their meals, just really. Just mothering and, and not so much in the in the emotional way of mothering, but but providing for your children and setting order. What was the living situation in the Bronx like compared to Mount Vernon? My mother and I were just always bumping heads. And there had been a lot of unresolved stuff because I really, really you know, I really blamed her for what my father was allowed to do. We just fought. And so the difference in being in the Bronx, you know, my grandmother lived in one of those older tenement buildings, but the apartment was massive. It was huge. Like you could roller skate down her hallway. <laughs> it, it was, it was, it was massive. It was just good times. It was it was the South Bronx. You know, it came with its own level of roughness. But back then, it still was community. It was. Were you afraid for your safety? I, I think of the Bronx as crime. Um, it was crime. It's like when you live there and you know, you know, the people. No, you just I didn't. I, I mean, I would come in. It was, it's crazy because when you live in those situations, it's like even if like. There's a drunk in the stairwell. You just like, get out of here. You know, it's just, move over, Johnny, or whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I didn't feel unsafe. I really, really did. And I wouldn't go, I would not want to be there now. But then I, I didn't feel unsafe. I mean, it still was like the days, you know, you're talking the late 80s and there was still, you know, when it's hot outside, nobody really had... AC, we may have some AC units, but you sit outside on the stoop all night long. The, the fireman was opening up the hydrants for the kids during the day when you want to cool off. It was, it was different. Yeah. I mean, my grandmother and I would sit in the, on a Sunday during the day, we would sit in the window. She had, there was these two windows and we would sit in the window all day long. She would she would cook even if it was just pinto beans and fat back and an ice cold Pepsi and sit there and talk about everybody and their mama all day long. She taught she taught me how to talk about people without moving your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> she just say, mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She just mm -hmm. coming in here. She just walking in. She, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Spoke volumes. Spoke volumes. 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 <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, did she want you to get a job? Did you graduate high school? What happened? I wanted to be a nurse, but I had these, you know, I had these children and I needed to do something quickly or quicker than, you know, four year nursing program, et cetera. Um, I didn't, I hadn't graduated high school at that point. Um, I didn't even have a GED at that point. Um, but I was still really, really intelligent. And I went to Mandel School for Allied Health down on 54th Street in Manhattan for medical assisting. And it was about a 15, maybe 18 month program. And I aced it. And I remember my internship was with uh, Dr. Stephen Tamron on West End Avenue in Manhattan. And he said, you know, I'll, I'll keep her on. And, and I realized I liked the billing even a little bit more than the clinical. And it also, it paid better. That's where my career took off. And then later on down the line, I did go back and get the GED. But I just began to excel and get multiple certifications in the world of medical billing, coding, auditing, practice management, you know, over 30 years now. It's been an amazing journey. What was different about you? What made the difference? The prayers that went up continually on my behalf from people like Vera Robinson, who is my mother's mother, uh, Willie Irene Chambers, who is my mother's grandmother, uh, even my mother. Um, the there, I come from a long line of preachers, pastors, evangelists, ministers who are rooted and grounded unequivocally and boldly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we initially grew up, my family's roots grew up in the church of God in Christ. I know that, that my name was called out on many occasions until I was able to truly latch on to my own faith. I have to say the name Jesus. And that's it. Now, your daughter, were you close with her when she was going through the teen years, the tough teens? Yeah. So, you know, when you're a single mom, especially a single young mom, it's it's completely Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. It's you're good cop, bad cop. You're disciplining and you're loving them. And um, so we had our moments. So before she became a teenager, I would say we were we were really, really close. Um, and I asked her recently about how she felt about how ch her childhood. And she said she had an amazing childhood. You know, I, I got myself together probably once she turned about seven or eight where we moved out of the Bronx, we moved to New Jersey, and things really, really began to shift. But even when we were in the Bronx, you know, I made sure that my kids, we had Friday night date night, and I would expose them to restaurants and things like that. But we, she and I, you know, she went through a season because she got, she got pregnant at 14. I was devastated. I remember taking her to the pediatrician because I, I was like, she just kept saying my stomach hurts. 
And I remember taking her to the pediatrician and all the years that we had gone to the pediatrician, the pediatrician did everything right there in the exam, in the exam room. I had never been into her office. I was always in, in the exam room. But after she examined her, she told me to come into her office. And I was like, oh, Lord. And when she told me that Tania was pregnant, I just remember just bawling. And then our GYN happened to be in the same building. So we go up two flights and I just went to, I remember just going to the uh, reception desk and they could barely even understand what I was saying. I was just broken down. And honestly, I remember, you know, sort of being on board with her having an abortion, but she was so far along. She had hit it so well. She was so far along that it would have had to have been a two day procedure where they would have had to dilate the cervix and then she would almost really have to deliver the baby. And it was just like, we just, we, we, we can't do that. She wound up having him the summer of eighth grade and then went right back to, to high school in ninth grade. And I was adamant that she was going to graduate high school. I did not want her to not graduate. I remember trying to get help, like financial help, even from like government assistance. And I remember them telling me that because she's a minor, both of them were my responsibility. God provided. I, I just, you know, I remember doing work in terms of just finding things. We found a, a Jewish program, a Jewish um, funded program that said that as long as she kept a certain grade point average throughout high school, they gave her free childcare, top-notch, beautiful facility, free childcare, as long as she went to school and kept a, a GPA. Then there was another program that gave pampers till he was like 18 months. Like I was just finding all these things. And so we just, you know, we made it happen. And she went to prom, she graduated high school, she graduated, she did an associate's program, bachelor's program. Now she's in her master's program. She's a respiratory therapist, but she's a supervisor, I believe, or manager, one of them. But but there's she, there's no way around that in that moment, that's a burden. That's a burden on you. Uh, yeah. It's like, oh, here we go again. Were you pissed at her? Yes, I threw her through a wall. She, Real talk. Does she, does she I didn't know it was that? hollow. I didn't know it was hollow. I remember. I, <laughs> I remember, um, you know, her not coming home, you know, and, and try just that same cycle that I had started. And I remember there was an incident that happened. I won't even get into the real details of it, but she was just so rebellious and, and just had this face. And I remember taking her and shoving her. And, and she went through the wall and, and my son, when he tells this story, we laugh until we're like crying. Cause he's like, he was like 11. I came out of my room and I'm like, what the heck is going on? And Tania's like climbing out of the wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, you made an impression mom. Yes. 
and, and I had no money to fix it, so we put a full length mirror over that until, <laughs> until we moved. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't did not get that security deposit back. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh wow! Yeah. But I there was this beautiful picture you showed me of you and her. Tell me the story behind that picture, because I will never forget what you said about that picture. Yes, yes, yes. So, so there were two pictures I showed you. And I, I think that, you know, there was one with me in the Sahara by myself. And when I got there and it was just so silent and there was this breeze, there was just a breeze. And it was like I could feel I could just feel feel the hand of God. It was to think that he created all of this. And, and, and in that moment, I felt so small when I think about the creator, but I also felt so important and so large because I know that, um, that he cares about me. And so then there was the picture of me and my daughter and I'm sort of looking at her and, and she's, she's looking away and I'm looking at her and I just thought, you know, um, here we were, I was 13, had her at 14. It was so many reasons, so many reasons why we should not have been successful, but when you can go from the South Bronx to the Sahara and really, really understand that journey of 37 years and everything in between, it was just a moment that that's when, that's when the words came to me shifting the statistics. The statistics counted us out. The statistics basically said that you know, we, sh we should not have any, any wealth. We shouldn't own our own homes. We should have multiple babies. Um, there was so, so many things that statistics say about teenage moms. Destiny requires disruption. And we are both disruptors. We're disruptors to, to the statistics. At what moment was there that inflection point where your heart softened and you opened up and the walls came down and you shifted was there one particular moment or was it a gradual shift i think it was a gradual shift even in my relationship with my husband that it wasn't until the 10-year mark that he finally said that he believed he had fully unwrapped the gift of me and got into my heart because early in our marriage, we could have an argument and it could just be a simple argument. And in my mind, any plan we had for the next six months is done. We ain't going, we're done. We're over. It's it, I'm not feeding you. Like it, like it would, it would just take, take me right back. Boom. And, you know, I know that all of that was just rooted and grounded in past trauma and just my defense mechanisms 
just real defense mechanisms. And then I had to realize that everything that happens is not catastrophic. And it also started to happen once I began to pastor because I am a pastor. And as I counsel people and I even embrace people, I have a gift of even feeling what they feel. And I can feel brokenness. I can feel literally if a woman has been molested. I can feel that as I begin to just minister to people and understand the fragility of life and how much people are carrying and and really just looking for a kind word, looking for a smile. I, I my my heart has just opened up. That's beautiful. What do you know now about the work that needs to be done in a marriage? How did you stay married? Certainly prayer. I have stayed married by keeping my mouth shut sometimes. And not that I'm shrinking, not that I'm holding it in to the point of implosion, but letting things settle going into a quiet place and asking God for wisdom. Do I come back and talk about this again? Is it worth it? Will it pass? There's so much more power sometimes in the silence and in prayer. And then I would just sort of see things shift as we're married long-term. There's going to be seasons of lifting each other up at different times. It's difficult for both of you to really be set high at the same time. Somebody has to support the other. If he's going to school right now, if I'm starting a business right now, if we, you know, you have to be able to fall back a little bit and let them go forward, but then have your turn if that's what you desire. What, what does pastoring look like for you? Pastoring looks like connection, and real shepherding. And so what does a shepherd do? A shepherd is going to protect their flock. Call and check on that person and ask if they need anything. Loving a person, and love doesn't always sound, you know, cushy. Sometimes love is, you know better, and you gotta get out of that cycle. Now I've got a t-shirt coming from your enterprise. And uh, remind me what it says on the front. It says glory, not guilt. Now, what's behind that? What does that mean? Yes. So so that was birthed out of a prayer call that I started in 2019, just called Mind of Christ. It was Mind of Christ wellness prayer call. I would do a call every Monday, invite people to call in. It was really rooted and grounded in my own struggle of emotional eating and always just on this cycle of trying to lose weight and and all of these things but it was it was it was really around weight loss so in the meantime i had gone to the institute for integrative nutrition so i'm i'm a holistic health coach and one day you know we were just sitting on the phone and somebody was just talking about how they had started a diet and on a monday and they fell off by Tuesday and they feel so guilty because they didn't walk and blah, 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 blah. And then I just wrote down grace cancels guilt. 
Guilt, what I have found, is an epidemic. It's an epidemic. Amen. Amen. <laughs> whether you call it shame or whether you call it guilt. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. And guilt keeps people frozen. It, it plays a cycle like a like a reel-to-reel -reel in your head. It, it's been amazing. Just the webinars that I've done, the speaking engagements, the apparel that it has. There's so many things in the work for, for glory. It, it almost, you know, and some people call it glory. Some people call it G&G. &G. I've done seven week trainings where we just really, we'll, we'll take you through wellness, but then we also hit that whole, the whole guilt process and, and I'm still learning myself. And so it, it's a very, very powerful movement, but I've got to put this in the prison system even when they are free physically, they are still in chains from guilt. Are you talking about just women in prison or men as well? I think it's going to be men too. I mean, I have a, a pastor that wants to collaborate. He's in the prison system in uh, Delaware and he saw my shirt. I was vending somewhere and he just, he bought a, he bought them. He's like, I, soon as he saw it, he was just like, oh my God, oh my God, this message. Our church is very, very, very rooted and heavily involved in street outreach. And we started just by giving out bad lunches. We, I remember just making hundreds of chicken. I don't know why I started with chicken salad. I have no idea, but chicken salad sandwiches. And then it was turkey and cheese or whatever. And, you know, because we felt like, in order for people to hear us, you, you, you need to feed them first. If they're hungry, they don't want to hear about God or, or, or anything, but you have to show an act of compassion. And, and since then, you know, we do toothbrushes and hygiene baths and all kinds of stuff. But these people, regardless of what they look like, still want to be respected. And they want to know that you love them, that you, that you see them. It's compassion, compassion, compassion. And you have to have wisdom with compassion though, because there's some people that have given away the teeth out of their mouth. You know, no, I'm not giving you $5, but I'll take you to buy a sandwich. If you and I got struck by lightning today, and the only thing that survived was this little digital audio recording, what is your legacy? Hmm. My legacy is rooted in resilience. If I could send a message to anyone, I want you to know that there is an anointing of resilience that is inside of every one of us. And you have to tap into it. And, and, and you have to, you have to pull it out. You have to pull it out by any means necessary. And, and, and so, yes, that, that would be my legacy that no matter what, what I even allowed to, to sway me, I'm not falling down. This has been so lovely mm -hmm. and I'm so grateful to know you. Thank you. And I am so appreciative of, 
you allowing me to be a guest on this podcast. And I am grateful to know you, Stuart. Lachelle also showed me uh, a picture of the gorgeous home that she and her husband are now building uh, in the Hudson River Valley. And she showed that it was very, very meaningful that her husband and the contractor took a Bible and put it in the foundation of the home, which is very significant for her and for her walk in faith. Michelle, thank you. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and a hug and a thank you to everyone who has supported this podcast from the very beginning. I super appreciate you. I love you. and Thank you for your support. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. 